Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, we're thrilled to be presenting these two speakers tonight. Uh, John Jeremiah Sullivan and Mark Richard have written some of the most exciting nonfiction that we've seen recently, um, but don't take our word for it. I have some glowing review quotes. Uh, the New York Times book review said of Pulp Head, Sullivan seems able to do almost anything to work in any register, and not just within a single piece, but often in the span of a single paragraph. Pulp Head is the best and most important collection of magazine writing since David Foster Wallace's A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again. Entertainment Weekly wrote of House of Prayer number two, read it as soon as you can, you'll barrel through it, and you'll know after just two pages of his effortlessly killer prose that he's special all right. Narrating mostly through the use of, through the best use of second person urgency since Jay McInerney's Bright Lights Big City, he describes being a disc jockey, a deckhand, a private eye, a ditch digger, the man can tell a full story in the flick of a phrase. Um, we're going to be starting with Mark Richard tonight, and uh, he is the author of two award-winning short story collections, The Ice at the Bottom of the World and Charity and the novel Fish Boy. He's also a lecturer at the USC Master Professional Writing Program, and we're thrilled he can join us tonight. Please help me welcome Mark Richard. Uh, thank you, Mary. Hi, everybody. Um, it's nice to see a lot of people from USC uh, MPW here tonight. Uh, I see faculty, Dinah Lenny, who is one of my esteemed colleagues, uh, a nonfiction writer herself, memoirist, uh, actress, and uh, Dana Goodyear, who I, I didn't know I liked so much of your work until I saw it listed the other day. I'm a, I'm a bigger fan than I thought. Um, so um, we'll have to talk about that. Um, and I think Ron Carlson, is anybody here from UCI? Ron Carlson's group? Great. You get a free book um, for raising your hand. Yes, you do. See me afterwards. I'll remember you. Um, I'd like to just spend this time introducing John Sullivan. Um, there's a little bit of a story I have to tell before I get to his uh, actually bringing him up to the podium. A few weeks ago, um, I was talking to people at the MPW program about saying yes to things and how it's very important in our lives to say yes. Um, there are times when we're anxious and depressed or tired when it's easier to say no. 20 years ago, almost to the month, I'd left New York City or else New York City expelled me. Uh, there's a weird thing about New York. The, the moment you say, God, I hate New York, it gets rid of you. It just, it, it puts you in your car and shoves you in the Lincoln Tunnel. Uh, I'd been there 10 years and I said yes to an appointment at the University of the South Sewanee. Uh, I drove all night from New York to Sewanee during the the infamous winter storm of 1993, I think it was, and 
I had a dog and I was in an old Cadillac. I didn't realize on a uh, interstate that had been closed. I mean, I noticed that there wasn't any traffic. I saw some jackknife trucks and there wasn't any traffic. And then at dawn, I came up behind a roadblock um, and the state troopers go, you know, said, what are you doing? And directed me to Sewanee. My first day at work at Sewanee, my job was to teach honors English creative writing, seniors only capped the class. Everyone wore gowns uh, in the Cambridge style, right, Kevin? And um, they were pretty adamant about no more than 12 people in the class. And I said, fine. And Cherie Peters, one of those nice southern women that, you know, I'm always amazed when they say southern women are so retiring and this and, you know, they were, they'll kick your ass. And she said, you do not let anyone else in this class. So I'm going, okay, I'm tired, I'm anxious, worried about my new job. And uh, this real tall boy walks in and he had James Joyce, he had this James Joyce thing going on with the James Joyce spectacles and uh, he said I want to I want to be in your class and I was going well you know it's capped at 12 and he said yes but and I don't know I, I said yes and my mother would go that's because you were prompted by the Holy Spirit um, <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if that's true or not but I said yes and then I had to tell Sheree and not only was he not um, not only was he breaking the cap, he wasn't even a, a senior, he was a freshman. <laughs> so it turned out that that's how I met John Sullivan. And he was hands down the best student of the class and one of the best students I've ever had in 20 some odd years of, of teaching. And we became uh, friends through that experience. My house was pretty open at Sewanee. We had gin parties, croquet parties. Uh, my wife, my girlfriend at the time would come up. She was writing for Rolling Stone and New Republic. And I was still writing for Esquire and the BBC. John was very interested in that stuff. I think some of the other students were interested in my wife. They were, they, I learned later they had crushes on her. They were, it was not MILF exactly. It was like pill for parents or something like that. Um, well, I don't know what the acronym would, would have been. But um, John was always in the mix and was always coming through the house and asking interesting questions and I was really happy when um, we kept in touch that he had found some work uh, first with the Oxford American and the editor there called me and he said there's this guy John Sullivan and I said well hire him immediately and uh, John started working for the Oxford American I guess you'd put me down as a reference John I don't remember the details um, John then called me, and I had just come to Hollywood, and I was, I was on my first television show, and he said, I'd like for Oxford American to run a piece that you wrote um, called Why I Write. And I go, sure, you can, you can have it. It'll, it'll run, um, run, run, run well. Will Blythe had edited it at Esquire, and it, it's really good to go. And John said, actually, I thought maybe we could do some work on it together. And, I, and I, it was such a poignant moment. I remember so well being in my little shitty office on the Sony lot. And I was going, we're going to work on it together. And it was at that moment that the student you know, became the teacher. You know, the student became the editor. And I was resistant at first, and then I said yes. And by God, he edited that piece, and it was really better. And he was 
the great thing was, he was calling me on my own shit. You know, he's going, well, you used to say blah, blah, blah. And I go, oh, I know, but that doesn't. And then, he, but he would bear down. And it was a great experience. And it was a turning point for me as a teacher to be able to work with someone who had been a, a student in that capacity. It was great. John then went over to Harper's and called and said, um, maybe you should write for the magazine. And I said, maybe. And he said, how about the Outer Banks, which I've always loved. I said, sure, we'll, we'll write about the Outer Banks. And I wrote again for John as my editor. And the piece that I wrote, let me just say this, having John as my editor, the bar was really high, really high. Um, in the same way in his work, for example, the first piece in his book about Christian rock, where it starts talking about that, and then it ends up about John's faith, and finding his face, faith, and then finding his redemption, and then finding his redemption from his redemption. It just keeps getting deeper and deeper. It was the kind of thing we were doing in that piece that uh, we edited together. Um, my piece was about the Outer Banks, and suddenly it was about um, spreading my father's ashes, and suddenly it was about my father, and suddenly it was about fatherhood and me as a father. It was a really remarkable experience uh, to work with somebody like John, and I've just been so proud of him these years for the work that he's he's turned out. He's turned out such great work. Um, After, after he reads, I want to ask him a couple of questions, though, uh, mainly that comes from um, this great interview with his editors at GQ, because that's where he spent seven years, John, at, at GQ. Um, he's received so much great praise, and justifiably so, for this new book. The, uh, the, in all the right places. They're all saying the right things. And it's it's so good to see it because it is so earned. Time Magazine calls him the new Tom Wolf, which I guess is better than being the old Tom Wolf. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means, but I, I would even go so far as to say that he's he's as good as it gets when in the best of writers like Gates Elise and uh, Edward Hoagland, he's in that vein as well. And um, I'm happy to introduce him tonight. First as my protege, later as a mentor, and uh, primarily as my good friend, John Sullivan. <laughs> I also thought that Mark's wife was very beautiful, but I was always very appropriate and chaste around her, <laughs> out of respect. Um, that means a lot to me. I, I, working with Mark when I was a student changed my life. That's not an overstatement in the least. I, I realize now that I had the stupid blind luck of having one of the most interesting writers of his generation just kind of wander into my into my callow undergraduate experience but um but I at least had the sense at the time to to sap it for all all it was worth and um, I still I still don't really even know all the things I learned from him I, I, I try not to think about it too hard in fact just upstairs talking to someone a few minutes ago I was remembering that when we were at Sewanee together Mark was reporting 
and later wrote this amazing piece about Tom Waits for Esquire that I think is still one of the best things ever written about Tom Waits. And one of, and one of the great moments of my student life was um, being over at his house one day, drinking. I must have been 21, uh, but was really 19. Um, and 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 he and Tom Waits had left a message on the on the voicemail that was something like. It was like Sewanee. What is that like? Um, Pacific Rim. What is that? Pacific. Is that on the Pacific Coast? Yeah. He didn't even know where you were, like on the planet. You know. Um, so anyway, that means more than more than I can say. That 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 you got something out of it too. And thank you. And thank you all for being here on a Tuesday night. Um, I thought I would read this thing that I wrote about Michael Jackson when he died. It's maybe typical of some of the pieces in the book in that it's, it's kind of on the fence between an essay and a, and a reported piece or an article. Um, I, tried to, I tried to use that as a tension. Um, an old friend who's here tonight, but, but um, whom I shall not name, said that there might be something arrogant in, in just coming in from a flyover state and talking about Michael Jackson to a crowd in Los Angeles. But, uh, but, but I pointed out that I can claim him as a fellow Hoosier. And so it's on that basis that I speak about Michael. I'm going to take my gum out. That's right. <clears throat> it's, it's very Indiana. <laughs> How do you talk about Michael Jackson except that you mention Prince Screws? Prince Screws was an Alabama cotton plantation slave who became a tenant farmer after the Civil War, likely on his former master's land. His son, Prince Screws Jr., bought a small farm. And that man's son, Prince Screws III, left home for Indiana, where he found work as a Pullman porter, part of the exodus of southern blacks to the northern industrial cities. There came a disruption in the line. This last Prince Screws, the one who went north, would have no sons. He had two daughters, Caddy and Hattie. Caddy gave birth to ten children, the eighth a boy, Michael, who would name his sons Prince to honor his mother, whom he adored, and to signal a restoration. So the ridiculous moniker given by a white man to his slave, the way you might name a dog, was bestowed by a black king upon his pale-skinned sons and heirs in America. We took the name for an affectation and mocked it. Not to imply that it was above mockery, but of all the things that make Michael unknowable, thinking we knew him as maybe the most deceptive, let's suspend it. Begin not with the miniseries childhood of, jo of Father Joseph's endless family practice sessions, but with the later and it seems no less formative Motown childhood from, say, 11 to 14. Years spent when not on the road, most often alone, behind security walls, with private tutors and secret sketchbooks. A cloud-headed child, he likes rainbows and reading. He starts collecting exotic animals. His oldest brothers had at one time been children who dreamed of child stardom. Michael never knows this sensation. By the time he achieves something like self-awareness, he is a child star. The child star dreams of being an artist. 
Alone, he puts on classical records because he finds they soothe his mind. He also likes the old southern stuff his Uncle Luther sings. His uncle looks back at him and thinks he seems sad for his age. This is in California, so poor brown Gary, with its poisonous air you could smell from leagues away, a decade's exposure to which may already have damaged his immune system in fateful ways, is the past. He thinks about things and sometimes talks them over with his friends, Marvin Gaye and Diana Ross, when they are hanging out. He listens to albums and compares. The albums he and his brothers make have a few nice tunes to sell units, then a lot of consciously second-rate numbers to satisfy the format. Whereas Tchaikovsky and people like that, they didn't handle slack material. But you have to write your own songs. Michael has always made melodies in his head, little riffs and beats, but that isn't the same. The way Motown deals with the Jackson 5, finished songs are delivered to the group from songwriting teams in various cities. The brothers are brought in to sing and add accents. Michael wants access to the anatomy of the music. That's the word he uses repeatedly, anatomy. What's inside its structure that makes it move? When he's 17, he asks Stevie Wonder to let him spy while songs in the key of life gets made. There's Michael, self-consciously shy and deferential, flattening himself moth-like against the Motown studio wall. Somehow Stevie's blindness becomes moving in this context. No doubt he is for long stretches unaware of Michael's presence. Never asks him to play a shaker or anything, never mentions him. But Michael hears Stevie. Most of the Jackson siblings are leaving Motown at this moment for another label where they've leveraged a bit more creative sway. The first thing Michael does is write Blues Away, an unfairly forgotten song, fated to become one of the least dated sounding tracks the Jacksons do together. A nice rolling piano riff with strings and a breathy chorus. Burt Bacharach doing Stevie doing early disco and some other factor that was Michael's own that dwelt in his introverted sounding vocal rhythms. Sweet, slightly cryptic lyrics that contain an early notion of melancholy as final, inviolable retreat. I'd like to be yours tomorrow, so I'm giving you some time to get over today, but you can't take my blues away. By 1978, the year of Shake Your Body Down to the Ground, co-written by Michael and Little Randy, Michael's methods have gelled. He starts with tape recorders. He sings and beatboxes the little things he hears, the parts. Where do they come from? Above. He claims to drop to his knees and thank Jehovah after he snatches one. His voice coach tells the story of Michael one day raising his hands in the air during practice and starting to mutter. The coach, Seth Riggs, decides to leave him alone. When he comes back half an hour later, it's to Michael still whispering, Thank you for my talent. Some of the things Michael hears in his head, he exports to another instrument, to the piano, which he plays not well but passably, or to the bass. The melody and a few percussive elements remain with his vocal. The rest he assembles around it. He has his brothers and sisters with him. He conducts. 
His art will come to depend on his ability to stay in touch with that childlike inner instrument, keeping near enough to himself to heed his own melodic promptings. If you've listened to toddlers making up songs, the things they invent are often bafflingly catchy and ingenious. They compose to biorhythms somehow. The vocal from Michael's earlier off-the-wall era demo of the eventual thriller hit, Wanna Be Startin' Something, sounds like nothing so much as playful schoolyard taunting. He will always be at his worst when making what he thinks of as big music, which he invariably associates with, associates with military imagery. 1979, the year of Off the Wall and his first nose job, marks an obscure crisis. Around the start of that year, they offer him the gay lead in the film version of a chorus line, but he declines the role, explaining, I'm excited about it, but if I do it, people will link me with the part. Because of my voice, some people already think I'm that way, homo, though I'm actually not at all. People want to know why. Why, when you became a man, did your voice not change? Rather, it did change, but what did it change into? Listening to clips of his interviews through the 70s, you can hear how he goes about changing it himself. First, it deepens slightly around 72, 73. Listen to, listen to him on the dating game in 1972, and you'll hear that his voice was lower at 14 than it will be at 30. This, this potentially catastrophic event has perhaps been vaguely dreaded by the family and label for years. Michael Jackson, without his falsetto, is not the commodity on which their collective dream depends. But Michael has never known a reality that wasn't susceptible on some level to his creative powers. He works to develop something, not a falsetto, which is a way of singing above your range, but instead a higher range. He isolates totally different configurations of his vocal cords, finding their crevices, cultivating the flexibility there. Vocal teachers will tell you this can be done, though it's considered an extreme practice. Whether the process is conscious in Michael's case is unknowable. He probably evolves it in order to keep singing Jackson 5 songs on the road every night through puberty. The startling effect is of his having imaginatively not so much castrated as feminized himself. He essentially evolves a drag voice. On the early demo for Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, recorded at home with Randy and Janet helping, you can actually hear him work his way into this voice. It's a character, really. We're going to be starting now, baby, he says, in a relaxed, moderately high-pitched male voice. Then he intones the title, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, in a softer, quieter version of essentially the same voice. He repeats the line in a still higher register, almost purring, and finally, in a full-on girlish peal, begins to sing. A source will later claim that Michael wants in a moment of anger, broke into a deep, gruff voice she'd never heard before. Liza Minnelli also claims to have heard this voice. Supposedly during the Conrad Murray trial, they actually played a tape of Michael talking this way, which would have been interesting to hear. Somehow it didn't make it onto court TV. Interesting that these outflashings of his natural voice occurred at moments when he was, as we would say, not himself. On the internet, you can see a picture of him near the end of his life juxtaposed with a digital projection of what he would have looked like at the same age without the surgeries and makeup and wigs. 
a smiling middle-aged black guy, handsome in an everyday way. We are meant, of course, to feel a connection with this lost never-being and pity for the strange self-mutilated creature beside him. I can't be alone, however, in feeling just the opposite, that there's something metaphysically revolting about the mock-up. It's an abomination. Michael chose his true face. What is, is natural. His physical body is arguably, even inarguably, the single greatest piece of postmodern American sculpture. It must be carefully preserved. I'm going to flip forward a little bit through some pages where I'm talking about the strangeness of finding all these interviews with Michael that were done in Jet and Ebony and different African-American magazines over the years during the same years when he, is, he was being discussed as this unknowable, unreachable freak in the, in the mainstream media. Um, he was actually giving these very revealing and intimate interviews to, the, to these other publications that are, that, are, that are almost disorienting to read when you remember that they happened during the 80s. And, um, and in, in one of them, we find him listening to early writing version demos of his own compositions and saying, listen to that, that's at home. Janet, Randy, me, you're hearing four basses on there. He's talking about, um, he's talking about, um, Billy Jean, you know, I don't know if you've ever read about they, they did, did some amazing stuff in the studio. Actually, I won't spoil it because I'm going to read about it. When Michael and Quincy Jones run into each other on the set of The Wiz, Michael remembers a moment from years before when Sammy Davis Jr. had taken Jones aside backstage somewhere and whispered, this guy is something, he's amazing. Michael had tucked it away. He knows Jones's name from the sleeves of his father's jazz albums, knows Jones is a serious man. He waits till the movie is done to call him up. It's the fact that Jones intimidates him slightly that draws Jackson to the older man. He yearns for some competition larger than the old intrafamilial one, which he has long dominated. That was checkers. He wants chess. Quincy Jones's nickname for him is Smelly. It comes from Michael's habit of constantly touching and covering his nose with the fingers of his left hand, a tick that becomes pronounced in news clips from this time. He feels embarrassed about his broad nose. Several surgeries later, after one assumes it had been deemed impolitic inside the Jackson camp to mention the earlier facial self-consciousness, the story is altered. We are told that when Michael liked a track in the studio, he would call it the smelly jelly. Both stories may be true. Smelly Jelly has the whiff of Jackson's weird, infantile sayings. Later in life, when feeling weak, he'd say to his people, I'm hurting, blanket me, which could mean, among other things, time for my medicine. Michael knows he won't really have gone solo until his own songwriting finds the next level. He doesn't want inclusion. He wants awe. Jones has a trusted songwriter in his stable, the Englishman Rod Temperton of Heatwave fame, who brings in a song, Rock With You. It's very good. Michael hears it and knows, it, knows it's a hit. He's not even worried about hits at this point, though, except as a kind of byproduct of perfection. He goes home and writes, Don't stop till you get enough. Janet tinks on a glass bottle. 
Randy plays guitar. These are the two siblings Michael brings with him into the Quincy Jones adventure, to the innermost zone where he writes. We don't think of the family as having anything to do musically with his solo career, except by way of guilt favors. But he feels confident with these two, needs to keep them woven into his nest. They are both younger than he, his baby sister. From the perspective of 30 years, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough is a much better track than Rock With You. One admires Rock With You, but melodically Michael's song comes from a more distinctive place. You hear not slickness, but sophisticated instincts. Michael feels disappointed with Off the Wall. It wins a Grammy, spawns multiple number one singles, dramatically raises Jackson's already colossal level of fame, redeems disco in the very hour and flash of disco's dying. Diana Ross, who once helped out the Jacksons by putting her lovely arms around them, wants Michael to be at her shows again, not for his sake now, but for hers. She isn't desperate by any means, but something has shifted. Quincy Jones and Bruce Swedian, the recording guru who works with him, both take to be absurd the mere idea of following up off the wall in terms of success. You do your best, but that kind of thing just happens if it happens. Jones knows that, not Michael. All he can see of off the wall is that the year had bigger records. He wants to make something, he says, that refuses to be ignored. That blows my mind. He thought of Off the Wall as having been ignored. It was the biggest record that had ever happened at that time, but it didn't, it didn't you know, swallow the human race like he wanted. <laughs> at home, he demos Billie Jean with Randy and Janet. When the immortal part comes around, she and Michael go, ooh, ooh. You can hear it on the demo. It's really cool. The from Michael's brain then through a portable tape recorder on into the home studio, Bruce Sweetian comes over. Being Michael Jackson working on the follow-up to Off the Wall means sometimes your home demos are recorded by your, uh, at your home by the greatest audio engineers in the world. But for all that, the team works in a stripped-down fashion with no noise reduction. That's usually the best stuff, Michael says, when you strip it down to the bare minimum and go inside yourself and invent. A big, round, warm, Scandinavian type, Swedian comes from Minnesota, made his mark doing classical. But with classical engineering, it's all about fidelity, he knew. And he wants to be part of the making to help shape the songs. So a frustrated anatomist himself, coming down from high to low formally and meeting Michael on his way up, Quincy in the middle with his jazz cool called Swedian Svensk. The white man has the endearing habit of lifting both hands to massage the gray walrus, walrus, ring, <clears throat> walrus wings of his mustache. He has a condition called synesthesia. It means that when he listens to sound, he sees colors. He knows the mix is right only when he sees the right color. Michael loves singing for him. In a seminar room in Seattle, at an Audio Pro Recording Geek conference, Swedian talks about his craft. He plays his recordings of Michael's flawless one-take vocal from The Way You Make Me Feel, sans effects of any kind, to let the engineers and the audience hear the straight dope. A great mic on a great voice with as little interference as possible, the right angle, the right deck. Someone in the audience raises a hand and asks if it's hard recording Michael's voice, given that, as Svedian mentioned before, Michael is very physical. 
at first sweetie and doesn't cotton. Yeah, that is a bit of a problem, he answers, but I've never had an incident where the microphone has been damaged. One time, though, the guy interrupts. No, not to do damage, just the proximity thing. He's thinking about Michael moving too much. You know, engineers hate that when you, because it messes with the level. Oh, Sweetian says, suddenly understanding. His voice drops to a whisper. He's unbelievable. He gives the most beautiful description. Michael records in the dark, he says, and he'll dance. And picture this, you're looking through the glass and it's dark with a little pin spot on him. Sweetian lifts his hand to suggest a narrow cone of light shining directly down from overhead. And you'll see the mic here, and he sings his lines, and then he disappears. In the outer dark, he is dancing, fluttering. That's all Quincy and Sweetian know. And he's, Sweetian punches the air, right back in front of the mic at the precise instant. Sweetian invents a special zippered covering for miking the bass drum on Billie Jean, a muffled enclosure. It gives the song that mummified heartbeat intensity that you have seen make a dance floor come to life. The layered bass sounds on the one and the three lend a lurching feline throb. Bass drum, bass guitar, double synthesizer bass, the four basses all hitting together, doing the part that started as Michael and Janet going, woo, woo, that came from Jehovah. I'll just read a couple more pages. This is some from toward the end. It's about uh, the, Mo the Motown 25th anniversary special, which most of you have probably seen. Michael finds himself back in the old Motown building for a day, doing some video mixing when Barry Gordy approaches and asks him to be in the 25th anniversary special on NBC. Michael demurs. A claustrophobic moment for him. All that business, his brothers, Motown, the Jackson Five, the past. That's a cocoon he's been writhing inside, finally chewing through. He knows that Billie Jean has exploded. He's becoming something else. But the animal inside him that is his ambition senses an opportunity. He strikes his legendary deal with Gordy that he'll perform with his brothers if he's allowed to do one of his own solo post-Motown hits as well. Gordy agrees. What Michael does with this moment, given the context, given that his brothers have just left the stage and the stage belongs to Mr. Barry Gordy, is outrageous. Michael's... Uh, Excuse me. In the, in, in the by now totemic YouTube clips of this performance, Michael's preamble is usually cut off. That makes it worth watching the disc, which also happens to include one of Marvin Gaye's last appearances before his murder. Michael is sweaty and strutting. Thank you. Oh, you're beautiful. Thank you, he says, almost slurring with sexiness. You can tell he's worked out all his nerves on the Jackson 5 songs. Now he owns the space as if it were the inside of his cage. Millions upon millions of eyes. I have to say, those were the good old days, he rambles on. I love those songs. Those were magic moments with all my brothers, including Jermaine. The Jackson family's penchant for high passive aggression at watershed moments is extraordinary. <laughs> at Michael's funeral, Jermaine will say, I was his voice and his backbone. I had his back. And then, as if remembering to thank his agent, so did the family. <laughs> those were good songs, Michael says. I like those songs a lot. But especially I like, 
His voice fades from the mic for a second, ramifying the liveness till the meters almost spike. Especially I like the new songs. Uncontrollable shrieking. He's grabbing the mic stand like James Brown used to grab it, like if it had a neck he'd be choking it. People in the seats are yelling, Billy Jean! I won't cloud the uniqueness of what he does next with words except to mention one potentially missable because it's so obvious aspect that he does it entirely alone. The stage is profoundly empty. Silhouettes of the orchestra members are clapping back in the dark, but unless you count the dazzling glove conceived according to one source to hide the advancing vitiligo that discolors his left hand, Michael holds only one prop, a black hat. He tosses that away immediately. The microphone isn't even on. With, this, with, with a mime's tools, he proceeds to do possibly the most captivating thing a person's ever been captured doing on stage. Richard Pryor, who is not in any account I have ever read a suck-up, approaches Michael afterward and says simply, that was the greatest performance that I have ever seen. Fred Astaire calls him the greatest living natural dancer, which is both weird and passive-aggressively racist and also true somehow, in a way that only Fred Astaire could get away with. <laughs> Michael tells Ebony, Ebony, I remember doing the performance so clearly, and I remember that I was so upset with myself because it wasn't what I wanted. I wanted it to be more. It said he intended to hold the crouching en point at the end of the moonwalk longer. But if you watch, he falls off his toes when he falls in perfect time and makes it part of the turn, just as closer to the end he wipes sweat from under his nose in time. The intensity behind his face is unbearable. Quincy always tells him, smelly, get out of the way and leave room so that God can walk in. A God moves through him. The God enters. The God leaves. Thank you very much. going to sing for you. Okay. <laughs> All right now. All right. Have you looked at that photo of yourself on Facebook recently? No. That's not, that's not it. There used to be a show on called uh, Dark Shadows in the afternoons when I was a kid. You're saying that I look dead in that photograph? No, It's an eraser head thing with the hair. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> We have a lot of students here, and I just thought it might be interesting. These are, I'm just going to ask John like a couple of questions about the craft of writing, since we do have um, some of our nonfiction people here and some of the fiction people as well. Um, this is a great interview with John by the editors of uh, GQ, who made, made it possible for you to do what you do um, by giving you a lot of freedom. In this piece, you talk about uh, finding your voice, which is something that a lot of the students have a, a hard time with, and we were just talking about it last week. And in this, in this article, 
you say that you the first two pieces you wrote for GQ were not publishable, mm -hmm. which I was really encouraged by. Um, and you said that at that point I knew if I wanted to continue as a magazine writer, I needed to find a way to do my thing, or what I thought I could do, which was somewhere between a reported piece and an essay, where the first person narrator becomes a little character that you move around inside, I'm assuming it says, the piece. And Christian Rock was the first attempt at that. What was it, John? I mean, I know this is the, and we're going to talk about things that neither one of us believe in, which is like process and things like that. But um, there is no process. Yeah, there's no process. But what? Uh, how? What do you mean by that? I mean, where did you find the freedom to do what you did in Christian Rock? Because that was the first piece that you used that first-person voice that you talk about moving around like a little piece in the story. You can answer this in any way you want to. Yeah, yeah, through song. Through song. Um, I remember, I remember that, I remember that moment. I remember feeling with the Christian rock piece like something was getting figured out, and it, and, and it was, um, it, you know, it, it was like a lot of things in writing and experience more more of digging than than of than of making a, than of having a, f a flash of discovery it, it, i just felt like i i was getting tired of the bs in my own voice and in my own writing and i and i realized that it was that it that, that it was because i was um I don't know. I had something in my head, some kind of some kind of reader that I was imagining, and 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 was, and and was having a kind of bogus conversation with that, and as and as a result, not really getting the taproot down into the stuff I actually wanted to say, and that was actually disturbing to me, and 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 you know, um, and and. Um, and, and real in the sense that it would that it would remain true in some sense after I'd after I'd written it. It, it was it was I don't know what it was. I was getting out of a kind of um, performativity that had, that had been in my writing up to that point, mm. and and um, speaking from a place where speaking from a place of less certainty in a way you'd think it would be a more certain place a more legitimate feeling place but it was actually a case of i mean you must know this of getting down to getting down to the level where the ideas are are still troubling you and where and, and where you feel the need to write them because you're you're trying to work something out for yourself um so it became less polished my style became more abrupt and um and, and but that was the first moment when i when i felt you know like i was um I don't know. I don't know. Like the, the writing had connected with what I felt like I had to say. The two wires had come together. Right. You know. Well, and you also say in the same interview you talk about that place where, um, again, when you were overthinking what you were doing and trying to anticipate what the audience of GQ was or is, um, that you were you you were talking about the constructs, the things you plan. Um, the little moves that you can't wait to spring on the reader, nine times out of ten, those end up sounding slightly stiff. Then you talk about this thing, the half-conscious state you enter where you're actually generating prose. Maybe that's what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You're simply a better writer in that place. But it, you said, it's fact, it's the only place where you can even you even are a writer. To me, this is the secret comedy of all author interviews down through the ages, even the good ones in the Paris Review. They're all acting. It's like watching a person in a play. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. I mean, it's it's... 
writers know so little about what's really going on with them in the moments when they're writing. Right. It's precisely in those moments when they're escaping from the conscious self that they can talk about in a glib way and describe. But we're, but but writers are constantly asked to talk about those moments and to try to describe them. So there is a, there is a kind of code that's been developed almost to talk around the fact that that nobody really has much of an idea what's going nobody on there. You what know? they're doing. Oh, you're, obe- you're you're obeying the deepest, most edible, most edible. I wish they were edible impulses um, and and writing out of wounds and writing out of confusion I mean that when, when you're doing your real stuff you know but then but then you go for your Paris review interview and say oh yes well I first I make a cup of coffee and then I smoke a joint and then I like to read a little Eudora Welty and that you know it's like whatever that's a totally different thing it's a separate reality you know and moving on to the subjects that you choose, um, there's a great thing in here. You, you did the real world piece, um, and your editor, who was it, Joel, Joel Lovell said, um, there's editors out there who know they should never assign a story on certain types of subjects, a fish tour, say, or Mitt Romney, yeah. or what's up with Cuba. Right, then he named all of my yeah. subjects. Yeah, yes. right. <laughs> Um, but then you wanted to do uh, something about uh, the real world, the MTV thing, and he, he said the lives of former cast members of the real world probably belong in that category. But when John proposed the idea, it was nothing like a writer saying, hey, wouldn't it be funny if I went and spent some time hanging out with the former cast members of the real world? It was instead a kind of cry for help. <laughs> so w- had you spent all this time watching those shows and decided you needed to write about these I, people? You know, I was trying to speak on behalf of a generation there. I mean, I come from the generation that just had its minds destroyed by MTV when it came in. And, and I, I still remember the day it came in on cable in the 80s. And I knew I'm probably going to spend the next 15, 20 years watching this shit, you know. <laughs> and... and that you know that piece was was a way of trying to bring some good out of that or 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 you know redeem it somehow uh, you know I, it's a controversial piece isn't it yeah, a lot people? of people hate it and i and i hate it on some days and other days i think it was that sean my editor was for including it on his argument was it goes all the way but i think i think he meant into insanity um but it but stylistically also there are places where it's far out and maybe fun for that reason i mean that was the hope yeah. that it would be fun you yeah. know it's a, it's a hoot um <laughs> you know and one of my favorite pieces is the axel rose profile mm. um and you said this great thing with some of these pop pieces partly what you're doing is writing your way out of a confused admiration for the subject can you talk about yeah, that, that ties into the same thing it's like i, I you know i don't I never had a choice just speaking individually about whether or not I was going to be obsessed by and messed up by pop culture. It was just, it was inflicted on us, you know, and, 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 um, and so with some of my pieces, I, 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 I realized after the fact that it, that it had been this attempt to wriggle out of some, of some straitjacket like that, you know, a person like Axl Rose who had haunted my imagination, but who I didn't, I didn't want there necessarily or didn't want there any longer, you know, so, so write him out, you know, get, right. you know, get him. It's, so much of writing is, is, is just about an, in an almost physical way getting things that are on the interior out onto the exterior you need them you need them there you know i think that's that's a lot of what what motivates me well speaking of motivating you i and i'll 
I'm going to say this to embarrass John. Um, when I'm on deadline and I don't want to write and I'm in agony, I always call John because I know he's on deadline and he's even farther behind than I am. And uh, two I, months. I know it's like great. It's so great what to are you talk to John. About? <laughs> <laughs> then because I know he's in worse shape than I am, he has, he, he he answers the phone. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> hey John, how you doing? Going, I'm on deadline, and it's, it's, it's great kind to hear stressed. someone in worse agony than I am. Um, and we don't believe in process, and that's a longer uh, discussion. And I, but I would like to take some, um, if you would like to take some questions from oh, of course, people. Yeah. There's a pretty well-read bunch here. I can tell I know some of them. Um, does anybody have any questions? Yes, ma'am. Well, I know you had another teacher mm. when you were much younger. Mm. It's hard to act on that advice, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I think I think that essay is a miraculous essay. Oh, thank you. I I read it now about three or four times. Uh, I knew the man in his youth. You knew him in his great old age. Mm. He was crazy in mm. most times, mm -hmm. but of course, the people who took his class with me are still marked by it. Mm. They're still in touch with each other. They still couldn't understand what he was teaching them. And also, because as you said, he was racist, anti-Semitic, crazy, mm -hmm. but we loved him. Mm -hmm. There was something completely... He wanted to go back to the Middle Ages. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel you will love this essay. Read it. Uh, you will learn a lot about writing. Well, it's beautiful to hear that from someone who knew him as well as I know you did, and he spoke of you. Um, yeah, I mean, that... Uh, he, had, he, he was someone who had come to exist almost on a kind of world historical level. He was on some kind of Tolstoyan plane, and, and yeah, I just totally saw it as my job just to take notes, probably more notes than he would have liked. He did call me that at times, breath of my nostrils. Yes, yeah, yeah. My lord, he would come down in the morning and say, shall we rise and entreat her ladyship, my lord? Well, I know you have raised some controversy with your essay. I won't bring up the details. Mm. But I sent it to two of my friends who were in the class with me, and one loved it, and one said, Mr. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So, you live with it, you know? Yeah, you have to live with it. Though I can't resist it saying I don't think he would have hated it. I think there was a reason that he let me see all of that, including some parts of his personality that were controversial, like you said. I mean, he... Now that I'm a little bit older, I, it's so it's so easy to I mean, to you know you meet you meet a 20 year old 
if you know if that 20-year-old's gonna become a writer, not necessarily because of the talent level even, just because it's possible to tell that that person's not going to stop, you know? He knew, he knew, and he, he was transmitting himself. He, he was at a time in his life when he felt that he could die any day, and he was trying to transmit himself into the future and, and, to, and, and to grasp onto something. And I, and, and I knew that at the time, which was why I was never offended by. I, I loved him, and I, and I revere his memory. And I don't, you know, I don't. The people who think that the piece was hateful toward him to me are just—that's illegitimate, you know. Uh, I just want to say one more thing. Mm -hmm. My name is Meryl Jones Gerber, and I'm a writer. She's actually quite a wonderful writer. Yeah. But uh, he would say to me, "You write too much about family. How can you break away?" He said, "That it may be your subject, but it's drowning you." I mean, he said things that were mysterious like that. How break away? All of my books were about family. Mm -hmm. That's all I knew. That's all he wrote about too. So that's strange yeah, advice. Way, <laughs> he didn't want competition. Well, <laughs> but but I just thought I haven't been to war. You know, I haven't in those days politics, war. I, actually, that was later. That was at Stanford, where people in Stegner's classes were writing about um, war and drugs and so forth. Mm -hmm. In Lyle's classes. Everyone wanted to write about incest because that seemed to be the subject. That's what made the old man happy. Right. <laughs> 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 mm. Can you talk about reporting a little bit? Because one of the things that's so astonishing about that Michael Jackson piece is the moments in his life that are completely unfamiliar mm. to somebody who reads a lot of Michael Jackson profiles. Um, I just, listening to that piece, I just thought of the years it must have taken to assemble all of those, to track down those obscure performances, recording moments, videotapes of people talking about him at conferences. Mm. Can you shed some light on that part of the process? In that, in the, you know, in that particular case, I only had three weeks to do it, but there were years behind it. I mean, I, I had three weeks in order in which to access years of, of being interested in him and of, and of you know, reading tabloid biographies and things like that. Because he was such a big part of my childhood, you know. I mean, growing up in Indiana especially, he was, he was the only thing I could, I, I could connect to Elvis when I heard people talk about Elvis. That was the only thing I had, you know, and... Um, It was memory. I mean, I, you know, I knew where a lot of those things were. And, and, you know, also a lot of that, a lot of the reporting you're talking about just came out of being a, a pop music geek and, kind of, and a bit of a recording geek myself. I've been in bands. And, you know, Bruce Sweetian is a guy you know about. And I was into their production and a lot of those Michael Jackson songs. So some of the anecdotes I'd come at that way. But in general, I just, you, you know yourself, I mean, you just, you, you just don't say no to any avenue of information when you're in that, when you're in that moment. So I was reading everything I could listening to to bootlegs that had that that was one of the f most fun things about it was listening to these bootleg recordings where they would let the tape run between takes and so you're just hearing Michael talk and you know into the into the microphone in a very unguarded way and um and and you know doing phone interviews calling people up it was i, I was just just pushing every button to see to see what would come up and then and then ended up with this mass of material and and the things that ended up in the piece were the things that sort of shone out from that you know i was trying to find moments 
I tried to play with a lot of moth imagery in that piece. I was trying to see him in a metamorphic way. And so anything that sort of jibed with that went in, you know. Didn't the editors also suggest that you, you honor him in a way? Yeah, they, yeah, definitely. They wanted um, they wanted to, they, they wanted to honor to honor him. They wanted to try to cut through that. I mean, y y after he died, you must remember there was just that month-long tornado of just of you know talking about him and generally just saying the same stuff. And and the idea was to try to penetrate that somehow. And 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 the way I came up with was by going back, you know, by going back into his life and also by going back historically and trying to trying to see him in the in the in the river of of southern african american music which he belonged to but which by the end of his life he had, he seemed as alien from as as an alien you know uh, off Dana's question i mean when i read your stuff i don't know how you do it and uh, you know there was a piece john mcphee in the new york recently was asking about was talking about this where uh, reporters journalists they circle their subject um, until in the piece, in the piece I already said, you almost meet yourself coming back the other way before you, you know, go go on the attack. I mean, how do you figure out your angle of attack? Do you, in a subject that's still alive or something that's still current, do you do that type of circling before you you go in? Or I do, and I and I and, and I even stole my way of doing it largely from John McPhee, who's who's been pretty eloquent about how he deals with with. Um, piles of information when you when you need to write a piece when you know you need to make something out of it at the end of the day and the end of the day is maybe only a month away and you're looking at this at this um, you know file folder of stuff I but, but but it's funny how often even when you do that and even and even if the research ends up going very far out and you end up drawing this very large silhouette around your materials how you'll end up coming back to that same urge that same tickle that made you want to get interested in it in the first place that's still the thing you know and and the michael piece felt very much that way even though i was adding a lot of information onto it and trying to make a case for something there was still this this ori this original feeling about him and just a desire to say something, you know, it, it was it was it was a, a, a eulogy impulse of some kind. Uh, I don't know. The moth took you through. Yeah, definitely, it did. Yeah, it, it pops up four four little places in the piece. Those ended up being kind of um, um, water, you know, lighthouses. Or it's funny we talk we we kid about not having process, but I think we work sometimes in similar ways. Where, and I was telling you about the piece we had. Um, you just have 11 bits that you really like about a thing, and they don't seem to connect together. And then you, but you sort of hold them up so that you can see through them, and you find that <coughs> beam of light that goes all the way through them, and you follow that. And that's not a good metaphor, but it, it comes down. To it, the, yeah, it works like you almost feel like there's a there's there's a, a, a lost story yeah. somewhere, and these you've received these chips. That belong to it in some order, you know. And if you can get them into the right order, then there will be flow and there will be tension, and, you know. So sometimes it's probably arbitrary. Sometimes you're probably talking yourself into believing that there is some kind of pattern like that that's going to make it work, and really you're just finding the only thing that will work and get it done, you know. But I, I don't deny myself any illusions. I need, <laughs> I need everything I can get. And panic too. Right? Yeah, panic. Panic works for me. The power of panic. Dana, you don't have to.
Um, anybody have anybody else? Oh, Dana, sorry. Uh, I just, I was interested in your saying, I wanted to ask if you were a musician, and you sort of alluded to that, and mm. um, I know you don't have any process at all, but I wonder um, how much the music, your music, has to do with all of this. And I mean, the, the piece that you read felt very musical to me. Yeah, I think a lot, you know. I mean, I'm 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 not a very good musician. I'm an amateur musician, but in a way, for a writer, that's kind of a nice place to be. You can be a translator. I mean, I feel like that's one of the that's one of the fun things about nonfiction, creative nonfiction. You get to be a kind of liaison between a specialized world and a smart, general interest reading public who wants to know more. And you can, you know, um, it's you know, it's also that. Because I had a brother who was a serious musician and who was and who was in, who in our house was having a lot of arguments about pop music with my parents and with his friends and and um, I think I was doing that kind of analytical thing with songs before I was doing it with writing and it was pretty easily transferable because it was you know you were just getting sensitized early on to questions about what uh, and it's not enough to say this is better than that why what do you like you know my brother used to sit me down with Beatles chord books we call them fake books you know the, the and where they've written out all the all the chords and 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 would show me how you know what they were doing in the bridges and how you know any other person would have gone to the a here but you know look at how he's going to the to the b flat and you know just just stuff like that it's not that i yeah, I mean that's what I'm saying. It's not, you know, it's not. I, I never learned music at the level he was talking to me about about it on. But I learned that you could think about things on that level, and then I think I tried to start doing that with writing when that when that became my thing, you know. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Uh, I was wondering what works well for you as you revise your pieces. Do you have any advice for the students? What works well. Um, Doing what my editors tell me often works well. <laughs> I wish that weren't so, you know, because I fight and I and I hold on to my little victories. But um, I think it's you know what works well for me revision-wise is just the whole process of ego detachment that comes with it of just getting you know getting the piece away from yourself, cutting the umbilical cord a little bit, and seeing it as this object, you know, as as 30 white pages that have these printed letters on them. Okay, this is a thing. Can it be made better? Is my own bullshit getting in the way of making it better? You know, um, and, and, and just that just that that process of objectification, you know, um, which, you know, which can be hard, but always seems to be necessary before something really gets finished before it gets polished. I, there, there, there's a letting go that happens, and things that you begin to see after that that you, that you couldn't see beforehand. You know, that's the other thing we talk about is that good editing and good editors are so crucial. People think that their work is sprung fully formed, and uh, it's just not. It's just not. And, and uh, I love the editing they did in your Christian rock piece. You know, when you talked about them taking the Stephen Baldwin, <laughs> which I would have loved to. Have Read, but they were probably right. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. um, so, uh, good idea. Yeah. Any one more question before we, we wrap? Well, thank you, John. It was thank you, thank you all. That was really that was lovely.
You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.